I hope that we can come up with a solution to keep this team and keep growing as a freelance business, if only to sort of shout from the rooftops that, hey, it can be done, right? Let's set a new normal and new possibilities. Welcome to Fascinating Entrepreneurs. How do people end up becoming an entrepreneur? How do they scale and grow their businesses? How do they plan for profit? Are they in it for life or are they building to exit? These and a myriad of other topics will be discussed to pull back the veil on the wizardry of successful and fascinating entrepreneurs. My book, Relentless, is now available everywhere books can be bought online, including Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. Try your local indie bookstore too, and if they don't have it, they can order it. Just ask them. The reviews are streaming in, and I'm so thankful for the positive feedback, as well as hearing from people that my memoir has impacted them positively. It is not enough to be resilient. You have to be relentless. You can go to therelentlessbook.com for more information. Thank you so much. Today, we're talking to Marnie Konsky, founder, CEO, and chief anti-chafing champion of Thigh Society, an undergarment brand specializing in moisture wicking, lightweight, and breathable multi-use shorts for women that are not shapewear. We talk about why she created this brand, how she ran it for years while working a full-time job, and how it's now run by a team of all freelance contractors. Now let's get right into it. I'm one of those entrepreneurs who has a classic, I had a need and couldn't find what I was looking for on the market. So it was 2008 and literally I needed long leg underwear for women. And all I could find was men's underwear or shapewear. And I had an incident one day uh, walking on my lunch break at my old job where my thighs started rubbing together. It was one of the first days of summer. And I was like, oh God, I forgot to put my shorts on underneath my dress because I always was used to wearing little bike shorts, like spandexy thick bike shorts or like a shapewear company we shall not name that ends in angst. <laughs> and I thought there has to be a better way on these humid days for someone who just needs some fabric coverage between her legs. So I spent the summer looking for this product that I wanted and couldn't find it anywhere. It did exist in a very basic format for some plus size companies that were offering size 16 plus, but they were still really like a basic cotton, like granny panty. And I just shook my head and said, I think I can do better. So that's essentially how it came about. All right. Let's talk about thighs. Let's. People (laughs) that are all shapes, sizes, and ages may not have a thigh gap, right? So even skinny girls might have chafing thighs. So let's just get that out of the way. Yes. I want to hear your, I mean, you probably have done a lot more research on this than that statement I just gave. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm really glad you brought that up right at the top of this conversation because it's so core to why I started this business. Yes. I wanted a short to prevent thigh chafing, but I've been deeply passionate about dispelling this myth around thigh chafe that if your thighs chafe, it must mean there's something wrong with you. It must mean you have a weight problem. Only plus size people chafe. All of that is complete nonsense. So what we like to say at Thigh Society is Any skin that touches where there's presence of friction and moisture is prone to chafe. So if you are a size two, you may get thigh chafing. And if you're a size 22, 
you may not have thigh chafing. It's a skin sensitivity issue as well. I know women whose thighs touch all the time who never experience thigh chafing or have to really be extra, extra, extra sweaty in order to get chafed. Right. For, for me personally, I knew it when I started the business. I had sort of been what we would now call a disordered eater for many, many years from my teens onwards. And my weight was had fluctuated from a size six to a size 12. And no matter what my weight was, no matter what the circumference size of my thighs were, they always chafed, no matter what, if I had bare skin touching in warm weather. So we're really big on that mission to let people understand that there's, this is a totally normal thing. Runners chafe, people who are super fit, babies chafe. Let's normalize this totally normal. Everybody chafes. Everybody chafes. I mean, and not everybody chafes at the same time, but it's so normal. It's like, it really isn't something that should be stigmatized. Yeah. Okay. So not naming the angst, but naming them. How do you differentiate and compete with a company like that? We don't. (laughs) Full stop. When I started the business, I was absolutely very clear in our marketing and messaging. And we still are today now that I have a team that we are not shapewear. If someone is looking for shapewear, they can look somewhere else. We can make recommendations. There are tons, maybe even hundreds of shapewear companies out there. And I'm not anti-shapewear. I think there's a time and a place for shapewear. I do own a few pieces. It's just the design for this product, if you sort of boil it down to the basics, is a long leg boxer brief for women that is seamless, invisible under clothing, lightweight, breathable, moisture wicking, and just it feels like a second skin. I don't know many shapewear brands where you feel like a second skin. You often have to wriggle and contort your body to get into it. You're essentially redistributing parts of your body when you're wearing it. It's very difficult to take off, to put on. It's really uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. Sausage in a casing comes to mind as a metaphor. And from the perspective of us wanting to help people feel confident and comfortable in their skin, Putting on shapewear is a bit self-objectifying. It sort of forces you to contemplate your body and what you think about it. And especially women, all these negative thoughts come rushing to our minds like, oh, I wish I was just smoother along here. And I wish my terms we use like muffin top and all these things that sound super cute, but actually could be quite detrimental to our psyche over and over again as we tell ourselves this negative messaging. I never wanted thigh society undergarments to make anyone feel that way. I really wanted an underwear that you could put on, set it and forget it. And I always do the analogy when people sort of ask me, but why? It's like, well, do you think men struggle to put on their boxer briefs when they get dressed in the morning? Like, no, they don't. They literally grab the most comfortable pair of underwear, they put it on, and then they wear it underneath their jeans and whatever else. Like, why shouldn't women have the same options? Mm-hmm. So I like to say we don't compete against shapewear. Yes, our products do offer some light smoothing, but at most it feels like a really comfortable, gentle hug. It's nothing like the squeezing that you'd ex- experience with shapewear. I own a pair. I believe you gifted them to me five years I ago. Did. Yeah. And absolutely. I don't go to the drawer and think, oh, <laughs> right. Oh right. God. Like right. this is going to make me hot. Just thinking about having to put it on. This no. is going to make me feel uncomfortable. I once, and I know we're not talking about bras, but I put on a bra that was, I think it was shapewear. Yeah. And I think that it not only did mental damage, but physical damage to me. And then like I yes. pulled a muscle trying to get it off. Oh yeah. Threw it away. And it was like $68. That's yeah. you. They're lovely. And I really appreciate it. And I've been seeing some of the ads that you're doing and really love where you've come from when I met you, I think it was yes. five years ago. Yep. So let's 
back it up to yeah. me not being such a fangirl and tell me how your business today is structured. So how it's structured today is not so dissimilar to how it was structured five years ago, except we have more people on the team. So when I started this company in 2009, and yes, that's 2009, not 2019. <laughs> I've been at this for a long time. I was very deliberate in staffing my company with freelancers and predominantly freelance women who were entrepreneurs in their own right and who were experts in a certain area of e-commerce, whether that was email or ads marketing or social media, et cetera. And so right now my team is structured with a network of freelance women who are all remote and virtual. And we have been since day one before we even knew what pandemic was, <laughs> which bode well for us at the beginning of the pandemic for sure. But my team structured all over the world and everybody sort of has their area that they work in and we communicate via Slack and many of the ways that now it has become normal for most of the world in this sort of post, if I can say post pandemic, I think we're still in it, but post pandemic world. And so, yeah, we do everything digitally. I've only met in person one member of my, or sorry, if I include my, our third party fulfillment, our warehouse, which is an entity into themselves, I've only met about four people of my roughly 20 person team. The rest are all digital. You've grown incredibly over the years and you're at a really big number with, I mean, I don't know if I've met another entrepreneur at the revenue level that you are at that doesn't have a dedicated full-time team. Yeah, it is pretty unique. And I, I love to share the story because I think it opens up possibilities for mm -hmm. other people. I've been very fortunate. I think there is an element of timing in terms of the people that you run into. The team that's with me now has not been the team that was with me five years ago. And I think that's normal. As you grow a company, some people are going to stay with you and grow as the business grows. In the case of Thai Society, being a direct to consumer online brand, we really have grown quite fast, especially in the last four or five years and even in the last six since I've been on it full time. And so the skill sets that are required at different sort of revenue thresholds and size of the company change as time goes on. And so we have parted ways with some freelancers over the years and brought in new freelancers who have worked with businesses our size who are on our path. And it just seems to have evolved at a pace that feels very natural and normal that, okay, we're approaching this next threshold. Who do we need on the team? Where are our gaps? And the people that have come into the team, I've actually met at very fortunate times. Actually, my current CMO, she and I met by complete fluke because I was, she called me to conduct a reference for a web design and development agency that she was considering using for another client. And so I didn't realize when she contacted me that she actually wasn't an employee of that other company that they were in fact a client. We started to get chatting and it turned out to be that she was exactly who I needed on my team moving forward. This was in 2020. So moving forward into 2021. And she has amassed in her freelance business, her own group of freelancers that she knows and trusts that she can sort of bring and sort of plug and play into the brands that she works with. And all of us are aligned in the sense that we all want to be working. They all want to be working for mission-driven, ideally female-led brands that are trying to make a difference in some positive way. So there's really been a lot of synergies and alignment. And I count myself as so lucky, honestly. Would you consider your CMO a fractional CMO? Very much so. Yeah. yeah very then, much so. Does anyone have equity in the business or is it completely yours? It's completely mine. We're starting to think about, and I'm starting to think about 
what's next as we look at our next stage of growth. We've essentially been doubling the business for the last few years and now gotten to a point where I really need to give some serious consideration to what an equity play might look like with my team. And we have pretty open dialogue about things like that. I think you have to. I mean, I'm not a very hierarchical person by nature in terms of an organization. So we're pretty flat. I mean, I certainly have my key leadership team who I work with, my CFO and COO, my fractional CMO. So we're in discussions right now about what that might look like for next year. And then back to your COO, COO is also fractional? She is, yes. And she also plays a dual role of CFO. And she has been with me the longest. She's the longest serving team member. I met her through my previous career, actually working as an MBA career coach at the University of Toronto. I had shared my idea at the time with a couple of professors at the university. And one of them introduced me to her. And we hit it off. And actually, she started off as a mentor and coached me out of my full-time job, off that taking that leap off the cliff. I, <laughs> I met you and you still had a full-time job. That's right. I think I did. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you honestly, you were telling me you weren't sure at that time. Yes. You were going to continue. So here we are at the next question. What was the pivotal moment that made you forge ahead? Such a great question. I think it was a couple of factors. I think number one, I was turning 40. And it was this attitude of, if not now, when? I had already been running the business for about eight years. I'd seen the sales steadily increase. I'd seen some opportunities bring forward with Meta, well, now Meta, but Facebook ads. And I could sort of start to see the potential that I always was afraid to even dream about for this business. And I think that combined with, well, seeing the trajectory of the business and also, quite frankly, having coached MBA students for seven years prior on these major career changes. <laughs> but it's I had, hard, right? As a coach yeah. to other people. Yeah, it was much easier. Have you ever thought that you should write a book, that you should write the story of your life to help other people learn from your experience? Please go to memoirsherpa.com and learn how I can help you write, figure out your publishing path, and market your story, your memoir, to a bestseller status. I'm starting new businesses outside of my core business and I can coach somebody like you wouldn't believe, but I can't do the thing that I can do in my core business or that I can coach other people with in this new business. And I think it's because I'm learning a new business, yes. but for you to be able to coach MBA students and then apply that to your own core business, how did you make that stick? It's like your mom tells you something and you're like, whatever. And then somebody else tells you and you're like, yes. Right. But it was the exact same thing. Yes. Although I was running the business very part-time for six years prior. So I don't like to call it my side hustle because I really wasn't hustling that hard to be perfectly honest. <laughs> like I really loved my, my it was like job. a pet rock. Yeah, it was kind of like every a so often. <laughs> yeah, like it was a hobby. And I resented when people would call it a hobby, but I also wasn't prepared to call it a hustle. So it was somewhere in between. Like I wasn't taking a salary from it. I was taking a few dollars here and there. I remember I was all excited because I took some money aside and put built-in closets in our bedroom. And I was all excited because I was like, yay, this is bonus money that I get to take from the business. And so, and I always have been, and I like to call myself a reluctant entrepreneur. Really, I never thought I'd be doing this full-time and certainly not in the rag trade. but. Honestly, I think wait, you know, back it up. Yeah. What did you just call? The rag trade. That's a 
So I'm from Montreal originally, which was a hub before everything went offshore and offshore manufacturing became more of a thing in the last, I'd say, 20, 30 years, let's say. Montreal was a hub for schmata business, as we like to call it, or the rag trade. And I knew nothing about apparel manufacturing, making garments, sewing, fashion. I still don't know anything about fashion (laughs) when I started the business, but I was really devoted to finding a solution to a very simple problem that I perceived as a simple problem. Like, why aren't any of the big brands coming up with this? And so it was that curiosity and desire to find a product to meet my needs ultimately led me on this path. I will say too, at 40, having coached MBA students by that point for seven years, having had two other careers before that, working in the government and then working at an international consulting firm, I sort of had been around the block. I had three career changes by that point in my life. I really had a pretty broad skill set. And my attitude was, if I take a year off to try to do this full time, what are the risks really? Mm. Like I can always find a job somewhere else. I believed in my employability is really what it came down to. I had savings. My husband and I had a good long chat, many chats about what that would look like. And the agreement was try it for a year. Let's see how it goes. And after a year, if it hasn't, if the sales don't keep increasing or you're not able to pull a profit or a salary from it, we'll reevaluate. But the year finished and things were there. I wouldn't say it was like a complete pendulum swing, but things were looking positive. And so we renegotiated another year (laughs) and that's when things started to really happen. And I haven't looked back. So I think it's really about believing in yourself. And I will say this, and I like to say this for people who are listening and wondering, what does this mean for me? Because I was a reluctant entrepreneur, I'm really a fan of people trying to do both a full-time job and see if there's opportunity for their business to take off on the side. There are enough hours in the day. You can decide how many hours you devote. No one's saying you have to work till 2 a.m. And also, if you're not sure or you don't even have an idea to pursue, try to pursue entrepreneur opportunities in the organizations that you're working in. Because if you think about it, if you're with an organization that allows you the creative freedom to plan and strategize, whether it's a new program or a new service offering for something that is you know, uncharted territory, see if you can do that. See how that makes you feel. Are you energized by those projects? You might be terrified. That's okay. I was terrified. I'm always terrified. (laughs) It's like you just start to build a kind of resilience and a belief in yourself that you can figure it out and you can test the waters before plunking down thousands of dollars for a startup idea. You can start small. You can start within your organization. There's so many different ways to figure out if entrepreneurship is right for you. And you may have to fail a bit to figure it out too. So, yeah, yeah, you got to try, you got to fail. I hate regret. And for me, it was really, I think I heard this on one of your other podcasts with uh, maybe it was the Crossroads founder. I think it was where it was the fear of not trying that was outweighing my fear of doing it. It was the fear of regretting not trying. And that fear combined with my now COO, CFO mentoring me out of my very cushy, pensioned, secure job. (laughs) That was enough motivation to say, okay, I'm going to give it a go. It's only one year, very low risk. I can do this. And how did you get to the revenue you're at now? Like what was the impetus and the catapult that just, I mean, cause you really, you went went far. Yes. So I would say the key to our success really has been fundamentally spending money on marketing. And a large chunk of that has come down to Meta, Facebook, Instagram, and Google. When I started the business, there was barely an Instagram in 2008. I think it was still really on the fringe, just starting out. The way I built the business before I quit my job, before we were investing heavily in advertising, was good old-fashioned sending product to what we then called bloggers, which you probably remember. Now the terms evolved into influencers, and it's a whole new world, as we know, on Instagram and TikTok. But it's predominantly been spending on marketing efforts, specifically in paid. And now we're looking at 
diversifying and actually focusing on some sort of influencer strategy, which we really hadn't had a, if I'm being honest, like we really had not had a clear cut influencer strategy over the years. A lot of the time it was me sending products, reaching out, Hey, I'm the founder. And I think leaders would love this product. And that transitioned into same thing with what we call seeding, where we would send some nano influencers and micro influencers, and even people like yourself, quite frankly, people who we thought would, would want to try the product and enjoy the product, because it's a different world now in 2022 than it was even five, six years ago, where there's so much conversation happening online about women in particular's bodies, just being free to be what we look like and not having all these hangups. And so conversations around things that were previously stigmatized Mm -hmm. are now starting to become more openly talked about. So to the point where, I mean, if you had told me like 10 years ago, it was really difficult to get what we would call user-generated content because people were a little shy. They didn't didn't want to admit that they were wearing these shorties. And now people are going to throw up their skirts and go, yeah, right here. (laughs) And we love it. I am so here for it. Like I, nothing gets me as excited as when we get people just randomly showing pictures of themselves on vacations, on their honeymoons, wherever nurses and scrubs showing their, lifting up their scrub bottoms to show they're wearing the shorts underneath because a lot of scrubs, they have this dropped inseam and you've got that opportunity for chafe in between your thighs. And it's just scrubs are not made of really nice material. They are not. I don't want that touching the inner. Don't want it touching your thighs. No. And same thing with like unlined wool pants, for example, things like that. So that for me has been so rewarding and satisfying just to literally watch that happen of, wow, we used to have to, how are we going to beg people to show us what them wearing the shorts? And now we just, we get such an influx from our customers who are excited to show us how the shorts are helping them. It's just beyond. It's incredible. Do you focus on SEO much? And if so, what are people putting in as a keyword looking for this? (laughs) <laughs> so yes and no, we could do a much better job. It's definitely a focus for us next year. The funny thing is, so people are searching for the same terms now as they were in 2008 and 2009. And those terms are shorts under dresses, shorts to wear under skirts, underwear to prevent thigh chafing, long underwear for chafe. And the funny part is, is there isn't much creativity, you know, really around this. We've seen a few wacky search terms for sure. But in general, the search terms haven't changed. And because Thigh Society was really the OG in this space, we were the first brand to make size inclusive slip shorts. So when we started, there really was nobody else. Like I mentioned, there was, I think, a handful. If I have to cap it at three or four plus size companies who did not make smaller than a size 16, who were making these very basic shorts, we came on the scene saying, we're going to offer something size inclusive. This chafeware, we've been calling it Chafer for the last couple of years. I wish I had thought of it sooner. But because we were the ones putting in Chafe and I knew enough, I was self-taught in Shopify back then. So I knew enough to put in keywords like chafing and wear these under your skirts and dresses. For a long, long time, I'm talking like seven or eight years, we were consistently ranking number one in SEO because Mm -hmm. we were the first. We just had the longevity of having these chafing keywords in our SEO. But now now chafing is kind of a fancy word for rubbing together. So I absolutely right. Rub. That's that's, it too. Yeah. yeah. I forgot that inner thigh rub thighs rubbing together rash between thighs. I mean, there's probably in total about 25 or so common phrases, but not much so new under the sun. I mean, chub rub again is one that I've been using for years. People search that. It's interesting. On some platforms, people are searching chub rub, whereas on other platforms, people don't know what it means. I think I'm starting to see that with TikTok. We're starting to notice that I'm in San Francisco Bay Area. Maybe it's just not a term that is used here. And yeah, you got to account for 
everywhere. And is this, are people ordering from Japan and Australia or is it really North America? So we're mainly North American focused. When I first started, the funny thing was we were selling quite a bit to Australia and New Zealand. And that's because I, in my early days of reaching out to influencers, then bloggers, I found this incredible blogger in Australia who was based out of, oh my gosh, I'm going to get it wrong. Was it Melbourne or Sydney? I want to say it was Melbourne. And she had a beautiful blog site and had followers who I felt would be interested in this product. Long story short, I sent it to her. My husband and I ended up taking a trip to Australia. We met. It was pretty cool. It was like she was such a fan of the shorts that she was promoting it and her blog was getting super popular. So for a long time, we were getting a lot of traffic and sales by people finding us through her. And so we continued on that path without really putting too much money in marketing as far as like attracting customers from that geography. But we did have a dedicated site. We had to shut it down during the pandemic, unfortunately, because crazy story, DHL, like major international global shipper, stopped shipping internationally out of Canada. Crazy. And so we had to find another supplier and that shipper was just very unreliable. Packages were taking like eight weeks if they arrived at all. And so we shut that down in addition to our international shipping in total. So now, yes, we do ship globally, but it wouldn't comprise more than probably not about 1% of our sales. I think it's still, I'd love to get back into Australia and New Zealand because it's offset some of our seasonality, even though we say it's hot down there. (laughs) Yeah, it's hot. They're getting into their spring, right? As our temperatures are cooling down. So definitely an area of focus for us to re-enter and re-engage with some of our customers who had been following us for years and years, and then eventually put some more strategy behind Europe as a market, South America, Australia, and all that good stuff. But for now, we're mainly in the US and Canada, and actually 80% of our sales are in the States. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. A huge road ahead of you of doubling and doubling and tripling. (laughs) I mean, I love that you're able to run your company the way you are now, but once you get to a certain level, it's, I mean, maybe we can talk in five years. I don't know if it will work. Yeah. You and me both. I don't know. I don't pretend to have all the answers. I'd like to think that I have a good relationship with everyone on the team. All of the team members are excited to work with this brand. They love what we're doing. They take immense pride in their work and everybody understands the contribution they're making to this company, to this brand, the difference they're making in people's lives. So I hope that we can come up with a solution to keep this team and keep growing as a freelance business, if only to sort of shout from the rooftops that, hey, it can be done, right? Let's set a new normal and new possibilities. I know a lot of- imagine a 50 million, like a $50 million brand with just freelancers? Why not? Maybe we should just challenge you right here and right now to do that. (laughs) Why not? I mean, we may need to bring in, who knows, or maybe some agencies that we might need to. <laughs> and I sort of glossed over this part and no disrespect to agencies. It's just, I found it difficult in the past to work with agencies. They just tend to be like very hierarchical. There's many layers of people to go through to get something done. And I just like the directness of working yeah. with. A and there's a lot of overhead that you're paying a for, lot so. and you're paying and you're paying more money for sure. So yeah, who knows? I love that challenge. Let's see what happens in five years. <laughs> for more information, go to the show notes where you're listening to this podcast. Want to know more about me? Go to my website, officialnatashamiller.com. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you loved the show. If you did, please subscribe. Also, if you haven't done so yet, please leave a review where you're listening to this podcast now. I'm Natasha Miller, and you've been listening to Fascinating Entrepreneurs.